Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 15th, 2018, and this is episode 2183 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Thursday. That means it's time for listener call show. This is where you either pick up the phone and dial the number 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on contact, and use the speak pipe button. And as long as you have a, a microphone and speakers on your device, you can leave me a message through the magic of the interwebs. Either way will work. Either way, when you do this, make sure you have a quiet area when you uh, when you phone in or speak pipe in. And if you're on your mobile device, make sure you have a couple bars at least, not one or a half of one, because if you sound like, and I would, gun, food storage, the New World Order, I won't know what you're saying, but if I get New World Order, I'll probably not care. Anyway, uh, if you cough in that quiet area with good signal, you'll be really likely to get on the air. If you follow the example given by all of the callers today, which is make your point or ask your question up front and then give me your details, you'll be really likely to get on the air sooner or later, within, I'd say, a couple weeks of making your call. If you ever make a call by the speak pipe or the phone, either one, and you've been about three weeks or more without hearing yourself on the air... Uh, you might want to tr try remaking the call. Maybe I screened it on a day I didn't feel like talking about your subject. Maybe you were not in a quiet area. Maybe there was an interruption. Who knows? But after about three weeks, it's probably probably not going to be on the air unless you recall it. Anyway, what do we got today? We got a bug out bag success story. A listener gives props to Stephen Harris from the Expert Council. Thoughts on inline water tanks and some follow up on that question from a past episode. Question on the 223 Wild, that's W-Y-L-D-E, and is it worth it to put nickel boron bolt carrier groups in your AR-15 build? Another, we have a question on art proof of stake rewards, and uh, I have a few thoughts on the crypto market drop as a whole. Uh, I have a question on taking care of guns and thoughts on old guns. Like, you know, I got this gun for my dad and it's 50 years old or whatever, what do I do with that type of thing? And a question on small scale wind power. Before we get into that, let's hear from the two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, westernbotanicals.com. Uh, Western Botanicals is my go-to source for everything herbal, whether I want something pre-made as a, as a pre-made concoction or uh, a tablet or capsule or something like that that I can take, like their uh, anti-inflammation uh, formulas based on turmeric, that's something I really like. Uh, their deep heat ointment that you use for aches and, and pains and stuff, that stuff I also really like. Or if I need whole herbs that I don't have or can't find or maybe some special component or something like that. But if I have a question on, like, how does this work or where can I find this or what have you, I pick the phone up and call them. And you know why? Real people that really care, that really will help you. That's what you'll find at Western Botanicals. Long-term supporter of the show. Been with us over seven years. And they are straight shooters in the world of herbal medicine where people are like, you know, this will cure cancer and stuff if you rub it on your... No, they don't do any of that crap. Uh, they do the real deal. Uh, check them out today, Western Botanicals. And remember, they have a discount program. Sells for 50 bucks a year. MSB members, you get the first year free. That pays for your whole first year of MSB membership. Gives you 25% off everything that they sell. 25% is a big discount, folks. It really is. 
It absolutely is. And uh, if you decide you like that membership and it's worth having, uh, MSB members are able to renew after that first free year for half price or $25 a year. Great supporter, great stuff. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. Man, I really dig Self-Reliance Magazine. Brought to you by the folks that brought us Backwoods Home Magazine for over two decades. Something I was a subscriber of for over two decades. This is the modern version of the Self-Reliance type of magazine that uh, Backwoods Home was. uh, With a lot more online content, a quarterly print magazine. Some really cool stuff in there. Kind of take things into that 21st century, and if you want to know how to be a more self-reliant, independent person, Self-Reliance Magazine is the information source that you should be relying on. Remember, they also do give a discount to members of the MSB. Before we get to your questions, uh, we do have no history segment today, uh, but I do want to remind you about the MSB. Uh, both of the sponsors we just gave you do offer discounts to MSB members. There's over 70 companies that are supporting partners of the MSB uh, that give you great discounts. You use just a few of them, your membership pays for itself, and you help support the show at the same time. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. And with that, let's go ahead and get into your questions for me today. We're going to start out with a bug out bag success story. Hey, Jack. Hal Knights from Brooklyn, New York, calling in to relate a success story based on the, the bug out bag that you spoke about. And I think it was episode 1671. Um, Unfortunately, uh, several weeks ago, my 89-year-old grandmother fell and broke her leg, and I had to go with her to the hospital, and obviously I grabbed my bug-out bag um, in order to accompany her. So we got to the hospital. It was um, a Friday night, and uh, it was packed, and we actually ended up waiting for about five hours before anyone even would see us, except for, you know, the billing people. Um, but... The good part is that I had food there and I didn't have to run out to a store or whatever and leave my grandmother alone in the crowded ER. I had water and um, I had things for us to do. Um, a short tip for the listening audience. I have a three liter um, water bladder. And when you're in a hospital situation, you could actually hang that right on the bed Um and you have three liters of water and, you know, all the nurses come around and they think that it's really cool. And then they start talking to you and you get bumped up to a better position in line. So uh, thanks, Jack, for all of your advice and hopefully quick tip for the TSP community if you're ever in a hospital situation. Thanks. I'm not sure hanging up a water bladder from the bed would always work with all nurses to uh, get bumped up in line in a hospital. Um, but I will say this, anything that starts a conversation usually does result in, I hate to put it the term this way, but somewhat favorable treatment. Uh, when you connect with somebody as a person and you stop being a number or a name on a chart in a clinical situation like this, sometimes it does actually help. So that's, that's definitely something that can work. On the overriding theme, though, about the value of a bug-out bag in this type of a medical situation... Let me tell you something. Over almost 10 years now doing this show, the number one thing that I've heard from people, and I've heard it hundreds of times at this point, of a bug-out bag type scenario paying off has been medical emergencies. Whether it's been your kid, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your uncle, what have you. That's the number one thing that, that having this kind of a go-bag 
has been able to help people with, especially having one for every member of the family because you have to think about it. like If you're going to the hospital and it wasn't planned, then you probably need to get there rather quickly. And even if you have a little bit of time to gather up some stuff, it's a stressful time and you're not going to be thinking. But if you, let's say your kid has a problem, you need to take them to the emergency room. And you're not sure how bad it is yet, but you might be there a while. And mom and dad and kid all have a bob. And you grab all three of them and throw them in the car. Even if you don't bring them into the ER with you initially. Let's say mom and dad are with kiddo, so one can leave and the other can stay. Um, if it ends up being an extended stay, all your stuff's there. And, and you know what? You end up in, in so many ways better off because you have whatever food you have there. It might not be the top quality food you're used to eating, but it, it's probably something you're, you're more than happy to eat. And you don't end up eating greasy spoon stuff from the McDonald's that the hospital always has right next to the cardiac ward, which I've never understood. I swear to God, every hospital that I've ever been to, any sizable hospital I've ever been to, has a cardiac ward and right on the, you know, when you come down off the elevator from the cardiac ward, right there's a big old McDonald's sign. It's almost like they're insuring themselves future customers. Um, so, you know, that's helpful. Having, if you have the kids at the hospital and the kids are at the hospital, not because they're in harm's way or anything, they're just stuck there. You know, having stuff for them to do, having things for them to read, having games for them to play. And this doesn't always have to be in a situation where things are negative. Um, I remember when my granddaughter was born. So they said, well, we're going to induce labor at noon. Well, I have never been through this before with an induced labor. I thought that means you induce labor, then you have the baby. So I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I got the show done early that day and I'm going to make it in time for the baby to be born. I get down there at like 1.30 and they're not even close. And they induced it early. They did the inducement earlier. Like apparently, twelve was their estimate of when this kid was coming. And I think she showed up about seven o'clock. I ended up leaving and going back because I had other things to get done. Um, but you know, the, my my wife, the other the mother-in-law, etc., their uh, aunts and uncles, we're there for a long period of time with kids. And uh, I'm going to say most of them didn't have any kind of preparedness mindset. And it's just a long time to ask a you know a ten year old or a seven year old to be in a place, waiting for something to happen that they don't really even fully get. And see, that's not a sad time; that's a good time. The other time that I've heard the most use of bug out bags has been in for first aid and convenience items when you're at somebody else's house, like at a uh, out back backyard barbecue or something. Kids getting tore up by mosquitoes. Bug repellent, bug repellent, out to the car, into the bug out bag. I know I've done that several times myself when visiting people, or small injuries and things. You're at somebody else's house, and the person's got a pretty nasty scrape. The kid needs a nasty scrape, and it's something he's a little bit more than a typical, you know, band aid. It's for a much smaller, but it's not. You're not headed to the ER. You could use maybe a little gauze and a little wrap or something like that, or what have you. Uh, a little. Uh, you know, antiseptic or something like that. Uh, maybe a good washing out, you know, something like that. And the the place you're at, uh, what? Oh, we'll just put a right now. Let me go get my stuff. Uh, those are the two medical emergencies, and that also I've heard things that are kind of medical emergency related. You know, you get a call. You know, dad took a turn for the worst, and he's probably got a day left. And if you want to say goodbye, now's the time. And being able to get 
home and be ready to do that because you're always ready. Those are the ones. And guys, you know, we talk about practical to tactical, and this is the practical. And there is no good reason for any responsible adult to not have a bug out bag. No good reason whatsoever. All right, with that, let's take another one. Good morning, Jack. This is Patrick from North Carolina, and I wanted to send you a message about expert council member Stephen Harris. After the recent bomb cyclone of early March, with the many people out of water, power, and most importantly, heat, due to the crazy snow, ice, and wind, on 3 March, Stephen Harris reached out under his own fruition to everyone in his contact list and held a live online conference event where anyone could attend and ask questions about the real-life crisis during this event and how to take action immediately to remedy those problems. This is a shout-out to Stephen Harris for his selfless sharing of his knowledge in a time of need and a shout-out to the TSP for having such a valued resource on the expert council. And above all, I think this shows exactly how this community and what this community is all about. Uh, it's about taking care of your fellow man in time of need. Thanks to you, Jack, for your continued efforts to provide us with such a valuable team. First, yeah, absolutely huge props to Stephen Harris for not just that, but for everything that the guy's done to help people. He's an incredibly helpful person. And, and certainly, I think the more overriding thing is the strength of the Survival Podcast community. I have seen so many people do so many things to help so many other people that are connected through this community and its various sub-communities. It blows me away. Uh, I've been asked before, like, you know, how long do you think you'll do this? And I'm like, as long as people will listen and support me, period. Because I, I think it's very rare that anybody, no matter how much you follow your passion, no matter how much you, you work hard, no matter how much things pay off, that you, you, you get into a point where you really realize, like, this is what I am supposed to be doing. And the, 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 the constancy of this community's outreach to each other makes me feel like this is what I was born to do, to, to, to inspire, inform, and in some ways, I guess, create the connection within this community. I, I, I do not consider myself the leader of this community, uh, maybe a leader within it. I, I don't believe, you know, when you say you are the leader, that means you are in charge. And, and I think a big part of why this community and its, its various sub-communities, the forum, the Facebook communities, the Zello group, et cetera, the meetup groups that form, the, one of the main reasons they're successful is I don't try to be in charge of anything. I might tell somebody to piss off once in a while. That's not being in charge. I mean, I'm done with you. If other people aren't done with you, that's fine. It's between you guys, right? Um, and I don't believe in because if you're if you are the leader, that makes you the ruler. And uh, I I think that when you are willing to get out of the damn way and let people lead that the entire organization is stronger, especially when it's decentralized like we are. Um, but Steven, man, I'll tell you, he is, he is one of the most genuinely, um, concerned for others people I've ever met. I, I, I really mean that. I'll, I'll give you an example. So there was one night that my wife and I were in a particularly humorous mood. Uh, we'd had, you know, instead of two drinks, four. 
And uh, we remember this old gag that Brian Black from ITS Tactical pulled on us. He had this pre-recorded thing that he sent as a as a text message, as an audio file, that was somebody else's voice. And <laughs> I'll tell you what it said in a second. But it was funny, but it was clearly a joke because it wasn't in his voice and it came from him. And so I re-recorded it in my voice, and I sent it to like all of the people that are really close in the fold as a joke, including my brother-in-law, who's a police officer. That'll make sense in a bit. And you know, all of the people that at the time were really close in the fold of, of the inner circle, I guess, of our family, which includes Stephen Harris. And here was the message that I sent. I'll do it as best as I can for memory. Hey, um, I. I just got pulled over by the cops, and they're going to take me to jail, and I needed to get this out before they take my phone away. Uh, they pulled me over, and uh, damn, here they come. Wait, I got a second. Okay. Yeah, uh, they pulled me over, and I've got real problems now. And uh, like I said, they're going to take me to jail. Uh, they said they were looking for one badass MF, and I, did, I said the actual word when I was doing this, one badass MF and one retard, and uh, they got me, brother, so... Uh, You better pack up your helmet and your crayons and get the hell out of Dodge, right? So <laughs> that was the message. And I was very much in character in it. And I think I really sold it until the end where you get the punchline. And I have to say, Doc Bones, we sent it to Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. And he, within like 30 minutes, had a completely like high production quality response where he was talking about meeting a guy named the stallion in uh in prison he sounded abundantly creepy sound effects and everything right uh he's like i got my crowns i got it. and he had like sirens going in the background it was it was actually spooky and kind of creepy the, the, his response but it was clear that he got the joke and everybody else got the joke and you know i think people have actually emulated it since then and uh, stephen harris called dorothy okay Because he knew that if the, if I really was in trouble and if this was some kind of crazy thing, that I that I would not have my phone by this point. But he knew Dorothy would to find out if there was anything really wrong and could he help us. And I I'll admit it, I laughed so hard, and she put it on speaker. And I mean, I was laughing till my sides hurt. And he's like, "Oh, that's fine, that's fine." But I cared enough, and he was serious, and. I kind of wish he would have got the joke a little better, but it does speak to how much the guy cares about people and his friends and, and what have you. So big on kudos to Steve. Gave me a chance to tell a funny story, and maybe someday I'll dig up that recording that Doc Bones made in response to me because it is, it is, you could tell the guy could have been an actor rather than a doctor because it's, it's, it's skin crawling creepy. I'll see if I can find it someday. Anyway, uh, with that, let's take another one. This one is on water tanks. Hi, Jack. Paul from Australia. Uh, episode 2173. Uh, you were talking about having a storage tank in line with the house. I just thought if that was connected to the hose bib, but up on a elevation or a stand, you would have the ability to gravity feed the house in a blackout or power outage uh, at home, we lose the electricity, we lose the pump to the house uh, as we're on tank water. So having the ability to then feed the house without any power source would be a great idea. Thanks, mate. Bye. 
So it's funny that this call came in right after the Stephen Harris one. Steve and I actually, years ago, we talked about doing a whole thing on water for the household, including things like you know being able to get a sump pump and, uh, and a tarp and basically filling up the back of a pickup truck with water from a creek, how to filter it and how to do things like backflow pressure. So let me explain what, what Paul's talking about. Much like... If you put power anywhere on an electrical system, the power then is available everywhere on that system until it meets a point where it's either broken by a switch or controlled by some other device. Water, once pressurized, does the same thing. So what Paul's talking about here is if we were to get, let's say, a couple 55-gallon rain barrels and build some sort of a platform maybe where they're sitting where their bases are, let's say, six, eight feet in the air, and they sat up there, And then we ran a liter hose from a hose bib on our house, plumbed into one of those tanks, and those two tanks are plumbed together. And then there's a, a thing on the outside of that tank that comes out of the top, right? And that comes back down a hose. And let's say when we water the garden or we wash the car, we turn the water on that, pressurizes the water in the barrels and pushes water through the outward hose. And now I can use it so that every time that I am using my water, I am rotating the water through my holding tanks, and I am getting my old water used. Let's say that we did that, and then let's say we lost power and we're on a well. Okay. Now, I'll, I'll get to the safety device from the government in just a second that prevents this from working, and you'd have to remove it if you did this. And some places where you live, that would actually be, you're really not opposed to do that, as my niece used to say when she was a little girl. Um, but if you don't have one of those things on there, and then you open the hose bib, as long as that's plumbed into your home and the water is common. For instance, I have hose bibs that are plumbed in one place, and then the house is plumbed a different side of two sides of a pressure tank. But assuming that your hose bib that sticks out of your wall is on the same water system that your house is, the water from that barrel is now going into the house, and if you go open a faucet somewhere on the first floor anyway, water should come out of it. Maybe not as fast as you're used to because you only have as much head pressure as you have height and as much volumetric pressure as there water in the tank, but you would actually have water to your sink to be used in limited amounts. The negatives. Whatever's in that tank, and this is why there's the safety device I'll talk about in a second, Whatever, if there's any kind of contamination to that tank, it's now in your water system as a whole. Now, if your procedure was when the power comes back on and the water comes back on, I'm going to flush out the whole system, you're probably fine. You're probably fine. It's probably not the most advisable thing to do, but it does work in an absolute emergency. And if it were a long-term emergency and it was put together with, uh, let's say, uh, rain catchment, it would be a valid long-term solution as well. And again, if you put water pressure onto one component in a plumb system, that pressure then exerts itself equ equally across whatever is available for it everywhere. And I mentioned second floor. So let's say that you had the bottom of your, your tank that was generating the head pressure at six feet, and you had a second-story uh, room, and you went and you turned that water on, then nothing would happen because it's going gonna, it's gonna to equalize to that height. Um, additionally, actually, <laughs> actually, you would get, you know, if you were at seven feet, you would get some pressure until the top 
Because your head pressure is the top of the tank, not the bottom of the tank, until that equaled out. But you still wouldn't get up to the second floor. Which means if you tried to use it to take a shower, that probably wouldn't work real well either. You'd have to get way up there. And the closer you get to where the two are the same, the less pressure you have. This, again, this is head pressure. Now, what about the safety device? If you go into most residential neighborhoods, cities, where commercial buildings are, etc., you will see when you look at a hose bib, which is the faucet that comes out of the side of the wall, you turn on, water comes out of a thing called a black backflow preventer. And what that does is it prevents what I just described happening from happening. And there's a reason for this. Let's say that you're out and you're filling up a tank with some nasty, icky, gick chemical like glyphosate uh, that you're watering down to spray plants. And you're doing it at a very large level. Uh, let's say you're, you're filling up a 300-gallon tank on the back of the truck, and you're going to go driving down the road and spray the highway, which is what they do here. So you put, you know, like uh, at that point, they're probably putting like 50 gallons of concentrate in there and 250 gallons of water, uh, maybe even more. I've seen them do that with as much as like, you know, a 500 or an 800-gallon tank. And you throw a hose in there, and you turn the water on. Now, let's say that the water pressure fails, the city water goes down, or your own water pressure goes down. What happens is since that tank is up in the air and that, that hose is full of water, it forms a siphon and the water goes back into the water system. And now you're putting glyphosate or whatever other nasty chemical was in that tank into your water supply and possibly the entire town's water supply. So that's why that thing exists. How do they work? Obviously, they're a one-way flow valve. That's not what I mean, though. Like, how do, how do you install them? By code, this is what you're supposed to do. You turn them on until they're fixed tightly to your hose bib, and then there's a little bitty screw that goes in, usually with an Allen key or a screwdriver. That goes in so that you can't remove it. You're supposed to tighten it all the way and break it off. I hate this idea. Because if there ends up being a leak or problem with the backflow preventer, I now have to replace the entire hose bib. So, what I always did when we had it, we had a commercial building got inspected for these things in Fort Worth for a while. We would put them on and we would put the little screw on like finger tight and the inspector would usually just walk by and look at it. So that's a little extra information if you need that. Anyway... Um, I did have another person writing about this, and the original question was about taking a couple of these 55-gallon drums, putting them in the house, you know, like before you get to the water heater or whatever, to have reserve water in the house, like pre on the on the the uh, the cold side of the water heater or any other point of supply in the house. And I said I totally dis do not recommend this. I heard from several people, including like handyman types, plumbers, engineers, that you're absolutely right; those barrels are not meant to maintain pressure like that. Okay, great. I'm I'm all about that. Uh, and also, if something goes wrong, your insurance company's probably not going to cover it, so don't do that. However, I mentioned using an actual pressure tank as a water reserve, and a couple people wrote in and said, that's fine, the, electrical, uh, the insurance company would probably cover that. And uh, you can often find ones that people are replacing, there's nothing wrong with, but they want a new fancy one. So, and the other option was... If you find old water heaters that are in good shape, except the element is shot, a lot of times people will just put a whole new water heater in because they're more efficient. Well, if you're not using it to heat water, and then it's purpose-built for that, and you probably won't have any problem with your insurance company any, either if you had a water heater acting as your extra water redundancy. This is also a place a lot of times people have water heaters upstairs in a two-story house, and on with what Paul said, it may make sense if you're doing any kind of an extra tank in your home 
If you can locate it upstairs, locate it upstairs because then you have pressure. And remember, if there's pressure on the system, it's on the entire system based on the head and volumetric pressure against it. All right, with that, let's take another one. This one is on AR-15 builds. Jack, this is Andrew in Colorado. I'm building an AR-15, and I was wondering if a nickel-boron bolt carrier group is worth the added cost. Also, would you recommend a 223 Wild barrel? Looking forward to your answer. Thanks. Bye. Okay, full disclosure before I give my opinion on this, right? I am the host of the Survival Podcast. I own quite a few ARs. I like them. I like to shoot them. I'm a prior service soldier uh, where I shot the M16A1 and A2, uh, both, because I am that damn old. Uh, I never did shoot the M4. That came after me. That's how freaking old I am. Uh, so I like the platform, I like the gun, and I respect it. It doesn't hugely excite me. I, I actually think I own more ARs than I would if we didn't have such an anti-AR, you know, semi-auto, military-style rifle, etc. sentiment in the country. I own more of them just out of spite, because I believe that it's my right to own them. I actually get, you know, I'm saying this so that, you know, my answer I'm about to give will be qualified against who I am, right? Because I think you ask this question to 20 knowledgeable firearms people, you, you might get 20 different opinions. So I get more excited by, like, an old Marlin that doesn't have the stupid crossbolt safety and, like, 357 Magnum than I do about an AR. I, I, I just do. I get more excited about the concept I'm thinking about this year, about investing in a really nice bolt-action rifle. I have some guns I really like, some guns I've hunted with a lot, but I've never owned anything like a Weatherby Mark V or something like that. That excites me more than an AR. It, it really does. The, the concept of doing something with uh, like, like a 6.5 Grendel in a bolt-action actually excites me more than an AR. So I have knowledge of ARs, but I am not like the guy that lives and breathes every single component and accessory of the AR-15. It's just not me. With that in mind, here's my opinion on the two things. Let's start out with the 223 Wild and what it is and why it exists. So when you look at AR-15s, you will find that there's two primary options when we're talking about 223 or 5.56 millimeter caliber. And those are either the 223 Remington or the 556 NATO. And the way this works is if you have an AR and it's chambered for 223 Remington, it is not considered safe to fire 556 ammo in. Okay? Only 223 Remington. So your mill serp and stuff like that is out the door. The outer dimensions of the 223 and the 556 are the same. They're the same. The inner dimensions are not. The inner dimensions of the 5.56 are actually slightly smaller, the brass is slightly thicker, and that means it actually operates at higher pressures. We don't always get more power in a, in a cartridge just by having more space, because there's a maximum load that is acceptable on pressure for any given round, so if we reduce the interior space and use about the same charge, or maybe a little bit more because we don't quite fill the other one. We don't just shove powder to the top. There's some cartridges you can do that with. This is not one of them. Um, then you actually get a higher pressure in the one with less capacity. And that means that the 5.56 NATO operates at a higher pressure 
than a 223. So if we get an AR with 556 chambering, which most people do, that means we can take 223 Remington and shoot it in the 556, and we can put 556 in the 556. That's fine. That's all kosher. But we do not go the other way. We cannot take the 223 chambered AR and put the 556 in it. Got it? Because it's higher pressure than the 223 barrel is rated for and the 223 chambering is rated for. Got it? Simple. Now, so, why wouldn't you just get 556? Why would you do this 223 wild thing? Okay, and that's W-Y-L-D-E, if I remember how to spell correctly. Because the reason that people go with 223 is it has a greater accuracy inherency than the 556. So especially when people are trying to you know knock dimes out at 100 meters or whatever, you're, you're starting out with an accuracy advantage, especially if we go to certain twist rates and heavier bullets, like an 80-grain uh, Spitzer or something like that, that some of the people that shoot like competition level or just are going for inherent accuracy will tend to shoot. If we go to the 5.56, we can shoot both ammo, but we don't get that inherent accuracy. The wild is an attempt to allow you to fire either or, but give you the inherent accuracy of the 2.23. That's the story. If you ask people that measure their groups in millimeters, you will hear a general consensus to the story checks out. The 223 uh, chambered weapons tend to be more accurate than the 556 chambered weapons. The wild uh, chambering tends to match the 223's performance, and it is safe to shoot both rounds in the wild. It, it accomplished its goal. I would say personally, if you had the three options and they were all about the same price, I can't give you a good reason to not go with the wild. If it was going to cost me significantly more, I wouldn't do it. I would just go with a 5.56. And the reason is, having shot a lot of ARs in my life, I generally find that they are more accurate than the shooter, even when they're chambered in 5.56. If we're not going to be going into precision shooting, I don't see the added cost. And I haven't checked into the pricing, so I don't know. If it was 50 bucks more, I would do it. Across an entire uh, kind of upper end AR build, it's not much money. Uh, if it was two hundred and fifty dollars more, I, I personally, I personally wouldn't do it. But I would not fault you for it. And I do believe that if we measure at that tight of the consistency, that it does do what it claims to do, based on all the people I've talked to. On that, I've never shot one, and I've never tested it myself, but. I have it on enough people I trust that I, I do believe it does give you that added accuracy with that dual round capability. The best of both worlds. I just don't think it's sufficient for most people to, to really see a practical difference. And I just go with a 5.56 chamber. Uh, next up on the, uh, the nickel boron bolt group. Um, when I looked into this, what I saw was uh, adults acting like children, cussing each other out because they shared different opinions. It was pretty hysterical. Some of the forum and YouTube threads that I read where, you know, I don't see why you'd pay more for this. Well, that's because you're a dumbass, you stupid. Yeah, like that, you know. Well, you are, you know, and then starting insulting each other, and I can run faster than you, and I can shoot better than you, and I'm dead serious, right? And I'm like, okay, whatever. 
But what I, what I came away from looking at all this was, okay, maybe, maybe it's a little easier to clean. Maybe it's a little more reliable long-term, maybe. However, I have never had a properly cared-for AR with a parkerized uh, bolt carrier group that I considered unreliable, period. And I've never considered them that difficult to clean. And I think, honestly, even though the people that are fanatical about them um, don't want to admit it and cuss people out who say so, I think they like it because it's shiny, silver, chromy looking when it's clean. And it looks cool. I, I really do. I mean, I do think there is a performance enhancement. These are not cheap. They run $180 to $250. Now, if you are doing a complete build where you're already buying a bolt carrier group, you have a cost there that offsets it, but a bolt carrier group is not expensive, right? I mean, it isn't. So is it really worth that extra money? Again, I'm back to me, No. The best case that I've seen made for them is that the people that compete at very, very high levels tend to all use them in things like three-gun competitions and stuff like that. Okay, I'm fine with that. There, like I said, there may be a slight performance advantage and a slight maintenance advantage there. However, I back to the same thing. I don't think the average shooter will notice the difference. And so what I would advise you to do is do your AR build with a standard bolt. And then down the road, if you want to upgrade that bolt carrier group, you can always do that. In the meantime, you might find that you have better things to do with that $250. Those are my thoughts. I hope I did a good job on that question. Let's take another one. This one on the cryptocurrency known as ARC. Hey, TSP. This is Josh from California. I had a question for Jack today about ARC. I went ahead and voted for a delegate. Um, very excited to start getting my contribution, the proof of stake. Um, but I haven't started receiving anything, and I was wondering when I might start receiving some ARC back. Um, thank you very much, Jack. I look forward to hearing the answer. This is actually a really easy one, and it's one I've got a bunch of times by email. I think I did it once on the air before as far as the proof-of-stake rewards. So ARC works through what's called a delegated proof-of-stake. So you buy some ARC, you put it in the official ARC wallet, and then you spend an ARC to vote for a delegate. And there's 51 delegates at any one time. Each one of these delegates run nodes. And those nodes do what miners do for other cryptocurrencies. In other words, they verify the validity of transactions. So that when I send you four ARC, right, we know that those four ARC are now with you and no longer with me, and we make sure they can never be double spent. And you can rest assured that you've gotten your payment, and I can rest assured that you've got your payment so you can give me my stuff, whatever I was buying with those, those currency. And the way the delegates work is they then are elected by the rest of the ARC community. And however many ARC you have kind of gives you a weight in your vote for your delegate. And as I said before when I've talked about this, this is actually a, a really great form of governance. It's a voluntary oligarchy. You're, you're electing your oligarch. And that means if one of the oligarchs starts doing shit you don't like, you can just vote for another one. And if that guy loses enough, there's a whole bunch of other delegates in waiting, I guess you'd call them. The guy's number 52 going, come on. And as soon as he outweighs the other delegate, then 
he becomes the new delegate. Okay? And in return for your allocation of your ARC to that delegate. Now understand, during this time, you can spend it, you can get new ARC. It's, it doesn't, if, if you get, somebody sends you 100 ARC today, it starts counting right away for your reward. You get basically what you could think of as a dividend. Okay? A dividend. Uh, on, on, on your arc, which comes out to in the neighborhood of about 10% per year is about the way it works. So if you had a thousand arc staked, you could expect to make about a hundred arc over a year. Not bad, right? Um, I have enough arc stake that I get about 0.6 on average arc a day in, 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 in reward or in uh, dividends or however you want your proof of stake reward, right? Which is like mining. It's like mining by putting up a stake versus mining by burning a bunch of energy to honestly not accomplish much of anything other than verify the transaction. It's very, very fast. They run eight-second block times. So when I send you ARC, within about eight to 16 seconds, you'll have the transaction showing in your wallet. And then within less than a minute, you'll have what's called, it'll be well-verified. There's been enough node verification that you can rest assured that that ARC is really with you, and I can rest assured that my ARC is really gone. And again, we earn that return. So people, you know, they go and they buy a hundred arc, and then they 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 vote their delegate in, and so then that means they're going to make about ten arc a year. Well, that means that they could expect, in most situations, about twenty payouts for the entire year, because most of the delegates, because there's a transaction fee for them to send arc themselves, do a payout only when the person they're paying out to is owed at least a half arc or more. So if you've staked arc and you're waiting for your proof of stake reward, all you have to do is figure out how long is it going to take for you to have a half an arc due to you, and that's when your arc will show up. It's not like mining where you get your .001 or whatever you know, as it's mined. You get it as that builds up. Most of the delegates do a payout Every 24 hours, some of them do it weekly, and they, they state you know what their payout is. A lot of them pay out around 90%, and they keep 10% for running the node. It, it makes a lot of sense to me. I really like it. That's why I've, I've, I've been a big fan of the platform since it took off. There is a profit calculator for ARC. I'll put a link in the show notes there where you can figure that out. You can see all the delegates, and if you choose this delegate, how much will your reward be daily, weekly, monthly, annually? And what is their frequency of payout? And again, most of them pay out every 24 hours. But again, if you look at, well, when do you hit a half arc? Well, that will be your frequency of payout. The 24-hour payout is as earned over the threshold. over that. And this may change in the future as when they release the, the, the second-generation core, our core, uh, the transaction fees are going to be reduced. And when that happens, the frequency might be higher of payout or the threshold might be lower for paying out. So that's how that particular situation works. And that's why some of you that have staked some ARC, you know, if you've staked 25 ARC, well, you're going to get about 2.5 ARC a year in payout, depending on your delegate and depending on how the whole thing runs. Well, that means you're going to get five payments a year. You're going to get about one every five to six weeks. So... That's how that system works. I hope it makes sense. On the overall drop in cryptocurrency, let me tell you where I think we are with this. In November and December last year, we had what I would call the first of what I expect to be many waves of people going, holy shit, cryptocurrency is going to make me a millionaire, and jumping in. And an ass ton of new money came in. 
And they came in at like the worst possible time. And most of them had no idea what they were doing. They bought a whole bunch of shit they didn't understand. And they got scalded on the ass like a cat that somebody threw hot water on. And they ran away. And a lot of them even like they're still holding what they bought. They didn't bail out. They just like, oh, this sucks. So now what you have is everything still works. We keep getting FUD about regulation this and that, and China's going to ban Bitcoin again, right? Um, they're going to ban Bitcoin mining. By the way, if China banned Bitcoin mining, yeah, there'd be some FUD and some immediate drop in price. It wouldn't actually affect the performance of Bitcoin at all because the algorithm, the difficulty algorithm, adjusts to the number of miners. All that would happen is all the guys in Croatia with a couple bootstrapped together rigs would be really happy when they got more of the reward. That, that, that's, what the, 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 that, that's how decentralized this is. So, um, anyway, they, what you have now is a lack of new money. So when people do sell cryptocurrency because they want to, to do something with, that they need fiat for, there's just less people to buy it. And, and I think this slump, it's not a crash, it's a slump, could go on for quite a while. And this is a good time to be looking out for what to cherry pick. And it, it makes me very happy to have a significant stake in ARC and a significant stake in mining gear. This, this, to me, this is a very good time to be involved with cryptocurrency. Uh, we are nowhere near mass adoption yet. However, you know those 500 bazillion tokens out there? I think this is going to be a wave of the death of the shitcoin. There are, there are cryptos that will never come back, that were worth quite a bit of money, that will never come back at this point. You're going to have to do something different, do something better, or have an individual specific utility that makes you valuable to survive this slump and come out of the other side. I believe ARC does, or I wouldn't be so heavily invested in it. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one on guns. Hi, Jack. This is David in Middle Tennessee. have a couple questions about um, a couple rifles I inherited from my grandfather. Um, they've sat dormant for quite a number of years and want to know what I need to do to get these back into firing condition, make sure they're safe, and... Uh, Best ways to take care of them ongoing, right? Details. The um, the two guns I have, the first is a Winchester Model 12, 16-gauge full, um, based on serial numbers, made in 1941. Um, seems to be in great shape. I did fire this back when I was uh, 17 in 1987. Uh, went through a few boxes. Uh, I think I cleaned it a little bit, but nothing really is done. I'm sure I did it wrong. The other is a Springfield Model 87, 22 caliber long rifle, smokeless, greased only. Never, I have no idea when it was last fired, but at least 50 years ago, uh, probably from the same time period. Um, uh, the metal on this looks fine. Um, stock looks like it needs to be refinished or treated somehow, but um, overall both the guns seem to click and work and cock and everything seems to be fine. Um, anyways, just want to know what I need to do to get these back in firing condition because I'd really like to take these out and uh, um, have a little fun with them. Anyways, thank you, Jack, and uh, thanks for all you do. Okay, okay so I'm going to say just out of the gate, and I don't want to be offensive at all, but you probably would do well to find someone that knows a little bit more about guns than you and to learn a little bit more about guns in general um, if you had a gun that you shot in the 80s and you haven't cleaned it since then, 
that alone tells me that maybe you need a little just a little bit more understanding of guns, right? Um, I had to listen to that a couple times because you threw me for a loop with a couple rifles, then Winchester Model 12 in 16 gauge, and then I believe what you said was full, as in full choke, which that's that's fine. I thought you said bolt, and I'm like I think Winchester made a Model 41 bolt-action shotgun, and that's the only bolt-action shotgun. I don't, Model 12 is one of the most iconic, well-known pump-action shotguns of all time. Um, and I went listen, listen like three times, and I think, okay, it's full. So um, some thoughts on this. Number one, you can get the, uh, the manuals for both of these for free for download just by searching the Internet. I would do that and le- learn the basic assembly and disassembly. I would give them both a good cleaning, uh, bolt, and everything and not field strip because personally I think if you start I'm not saying not a full strip down where you're taking the bolt apart and shit like that I think if you do that you will have a hard time putting it back together uh, because I don't think you you're, you're ready to do that yet but you don't probably have to do anything to get them into shooting uh, condition again You could probably take either one of them out right now, load it up, and shoot it. It may not be the best thing to do, but I don't think anything's going to go wrong. If you're really concerned, you can have a qualified gunsmith give them a safety inspection. But the truth is that firearms, specifically modern firearms, uh, made in the last 100 years, 150 years even, uh, are incredibly resilient and reliable, and they either fail or they work. They generally don't catastrophically fail and kill somebody. If they did, you know our media would be making a big deal about somebody losing their face every other day if it was happening. It doesn't. Um, I would recommend a product for your initial cleaning, especially after this long, called Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. Uh, I would look for any signs of surface rust or serious rust. Um, this is why I'm saying maybe get some help. You want to make sure that everything's safe, but I would do a, you know, a cleaning of the bore of the rifle and a swabbing of the barrel of the shotgun. And with a light, I would want to take a look at the condition of the inside of both barrels. Um, for pitting, rust, etc. Is there any kind of problems like that? If there is, you're going to have to live with it anyway. But I, I, you know, I don't think you're going to have anything that, that makes the gun unsafe. If you're at all in question, go look for it. Let me tell you how, for years as a child, I took care of guns that were well older than me. And, you know, one or two almost as old as my grandfather. We had a gun cabinet. It was back in the days when people didn't have safes, they had gun cabinets. And we had a number of shotguns and rifles and handguns that all went in that gun cabinet. And, you know, when a gun was taken out and fired, uh, you know, you run a patch through the barrel or a brush through the barrel, depending on how often and frequently and whatever, and, and you clean that out, and you put ran a, an oil patch down the barrel to protect it. And then we had a jar, and in that jar was a rag, kind of like a shop rag, like a, like a, like the red shop rags. And on that that rag was some hops number nine gun oil. And every once in a while you squirt a little extra oil on it, it stayed in that jar. By staying in that jar, it stayed impregnated with oil and it stayed safe. You know, you're gonna have any kind of spontaneous combustion or anything like that. And it stayed in the bottom of the gun cabinet. And the main thing we did with our guns, everywhere there was metal, we wiped it down with the rag. And then without touching the metal, we put it back in the gun cabinet. And for all of the hoopla over, you know, gun maintenance, everybody wants to be like they're in the military and have the sergeant major stick his pinky in there and there's no dirt and all that. If guns were that fragile, they wouldn't be useful. And that's and to this day, it's the main way that I take care of my guns. A simple wipe down, a patch through the bore, and every once in a while, a good full cleaning. If I go out and I shoot a gun heavily, then, yeah, I bring it home, uh, 
with birchwood casey, especially the stuff that's designed to not damage synthetic material like uh, plastic stocks and uh, wood stocks, etc., where if you get a little bit on, I wouldn't spray it all over, but you get a little bit on, it's not a huge deal. Uh, you can do most without even taking them down. You take the birchwood casey, you get the little straw that goes on it like uh, WD-40, you spray it in the, in the bolt group and what have you, you give it a good cleaning out, a good wiping down, you give it a thin coat of oil, and you go on about your happy freaking life. If you want to know more than that, I can't help you on an audio podcast. I really think it makes sense to find someone in your area that is, you know, someone that's a little bit more familiar with guns, to work with you on the takedown procedure and things like that. That said, like the Model 12, taking the basic takedown of that, taking the barrel off, if there's a plug in it, taking that out, taking the spring out, cleaning the spring, there are a million videos on YouTube, and you are more than capable of doing that. If you can turn a thumb screw, you can take down most uh, pump-action shotguns. It's not hard. Where I would be careful is when it gets to the point of like disassembling the bolt. I don't think you need to be doing that. The bolt group, removing that and giving it a good thorough cleaning, I think it's a great idea. And I think it would be good for you to do. Always make sure the weapon is pointed in a safe direction. Always make sure it's unloaded. And never check to see if a gun is loaded by pulling the trigger, which is a teacher in a California school recently did and blew a hole through the roof. I'm not, I did not make that up. It's a true story. But... I, I, the, the main thing I want everybody to have as a takeaway here is we do not have to treat guns like eggshells. If we keep them lubricated, basically cleaned, and free of rust, we'll be good. Now, if you have some surface rust, the best way I've found to take surface rust is to take some double-O steel wool and some WD-40 and just spray it and gently rub it. And if it doesn't all come off, don't get there rubbing real super hard or nothing like that. Spray a little bit of WD-40 on the surface rust and wrap it up in a rag so it doesn't run and get in a place you don't want it and let it sit for a few hours and then come back. And almost all surface rust, what I mean by surface, there's rust on the surface that hasn't pitted into the steel. Almost all surface rust will come off like that and usually leave bluing behind. If you have some places where the blue kind of is worn down, you want to clean it up a little bit, you can get a product from Birchwood Casey called Perma Blue. Uh, it comes in a paste and it comes in a liquid. Either one will work just fine for you. Uh, it will eventually wear off again, but it is a good kind of patch product, I guess you'd say. If you have something seriously uh, lacking blue on it, it's probably worth going to a gunsmith and getting it completely reblued. That 16-gauge Model 12 is a sweet little gun, by the way. It really is. It's one. The Model 12 is one of my favorite shotguns of all time. I said earlier, I'm not. I'm not like hugely excited about ARs. I'm more. I'm more excited if I'll if I ever find a Model 12 featherweight, Model 12 featherweight in 12, 20, or 16 with a modified choke. That would excite. And with an improved cylinder choke, I'd just be in Jack Nirvana, right? Um, I would look, if you want to start using that 16-gauge in the field and you actually want to start hunting with it, and I certainly would, You know, can you find a modified barrel? Because it's a much more all-around barrel than the uh, full choke that's on there. I'm not a huge fan of full... Unless I'm shooting turkeys, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the full choke, personally. Anyway, with that, hope that helps you, and good on you for having those old guns. Start taking care of them. And I think anybody out there that's not really, really sure of what you're doing with guns, find a mentor. There's many of us out there that if we were approached would be happy to sit down with you and your guns, go through it with you, help you figure things out. And you might bring us a gun that we're not familiar with, but our general familiarity will help us figure it out with you. Because 
you're you're uh, you're Springfield there. I have no direct knowledge of that gun whatsoever. None. Um, so if you brought it, I wouldn't know how, just start taking it. But I probably could figure it out without relying on help from a manual or the internet. But if I needed it, it'd be really easy for me because guns are guns are guns. I will tell you this about your Springfield. It's not worth a lot of money, but to people that are fans of that particular pattern, it's a very unusual pattern with some unique things. And there is a small cult that loves that gun, just so you know. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Daniel here from just north of Houston, Texas. My question is about using wind power. Details. I've heard you mention multiple times that ready-made resources carries multiple solutions for wind power, and I was curious if you had any thoughts on appropriate applications of that. Possibly my thought would be just to provide power for my well in the event of a power outage or some other thing. I have looked at solar before, but as you've talked about, I'm not sure it's really at the point and monetarily makes sense quite yet, but I was curious about a small wind generator, if that would be more useful than not. I really appreciate all you do and look forward to your answer. Thank you. You know, the truth is really I don't. I am, you know, I am somebody really willing to admit my limits. I've had Steve on, Steve Harris on before to talk about wind, and he is a fan to a degree. I think he has limits with how big a fan he is on small-scale individual wind. I know there are some issues with that, and there's some lifetime concerns about components, uh, rattle and wiggle and things with mounting um, uh, towers especially like rooftop towers and stuff like that. However, I also do know it works. I would advise you, if you're serious about consideration, to pick up the phone and call ready-made resources, uh, tell them what you're thinking about doing, and, and get some advice from them. If there's somebody out there who has practical, hands-on, real-world experience that thinks you could do about a one-hour interview with me that would like to talk specifically about small-scale wind, I realized from this call we've never done it, and I did something this morning that I need to let everybody know anyway, I reopened the guest form. So we got such a backlog of guests, it's been closed for like two months. We're booked into April right now, but it's now mid-March. So I reopened the guest form. So if you go to the survivalpodcast.com, go to the guest page, you can fill out the form there, uh, to get on the show. And that's for anybody that's interested at this point. Or if you know somebody that you've been wanting to recommend come on the show, now would be a good time to tell them, hey, the guest form's open. They're taking guest applications again. Uh, but I'd love to have somebody on for small-scale wind. Personally, I feel like this about small-scale wind. You shouldn't even consider wind energy if you're not going to do battery bank. Because the odds are that the power will be out when the wind is blowing are not that great. Usually what happens is a big storm comes through, blows like hell, destroys everything, power goes out, and then what I've experienced with storms is your solar don't work worth shit and your wind don't worth work shit because it's weird. You get all this cloud cover and you don't get much uh, in the way of... Uh, a lot of times after storms, you don't get a lot of good sunlight unless you're in South Texas after a hurricane. Then you get baked and you feel like you're going to die without your air conditioner. Uh, and then maybe solar would work. But you get like it's calm. It's like the calm before the storm. It's like the calm after the storm. Once a storm blows through, a lot of times you just get kind of this dead. And that's another reason that the, the temperature ends up being a problem. Now there's no wind. Um, and then I just think the way wind is uh, bursty, right, Uh, we used to call that in uh, telecommunications, we'd refer to traffic as bursty. Meaning like there's a whole shitload of traffic at 4 o'clock on a Friday. 
when the final stuff's going through the payroll and all. But, you know, there's not a lot of traffic during lunchtime when everybody's at lunch and nobody's doing their job or screwing off on the Internet. So traffic in a network is bursty. It's not uniform across time. Um, and, and, and the wind certainly works that way. If I had a wind generator on my roof right now, I imagine I would be generating exactly zero. But yesterday, the damn thing would have run all day. So I really think that battery goes with wind. So we should be starting with a battery bank system to do whatever it is you want the wind system to help power. If we're going to do that, well, it's really easy to keep batteries topped up with grid until we get the alternative power source available. So let's, let's really look to that first because then maybe solar and wind combo work really well. And I do know this from the research I did for you on this, that the wind uh, generators that ready-made resources rep, uh, has as a product line are specifically designed to work in the small-scale environment as a solar-wind hybrid system. And they're available in either 24-volt or 12-volt. So uh, I would advise you to go in that direction, look at the battery components of the system first. I'll see if Steve's interested in doing this, but I get the feeling like he it's not really his thing. Right, they'd like, but maybe I'm wrong, so I'll give him a shot at it. We'll see, uh, but I don't know that he's ever built small scale wind, and I think that the best person to hear from in this would be somebody that has, yeah, I have my little out, you know, off grid cabin, and I've got a one or two wind generators on along my solar array, and here's how it works, and here's the real world numbers, and here's my ROI. I think that would be the best thing for people to hear in in, in this type of situation. So thanks for the call, and and I will say this, the folks at ReadyMade. I've been working with them nine years now, nine plus years. You can trust them or I wouldn't have worked with them that long. So pick up the phone, talk to them about what you want to do. And I think if like you're, you're in left field from what's capable of going on and like it's not going to do what you think it's going to do, uh, it's not going to be a good investment for you, before they take your business in a poor way, they'll just turn it down. They'll just say, look, this is probably not right for your situation. Or maybe they'll help you find a better alternative. Anyway, uh, thanks for that call. And again, if you, uh, If you run small-scale wind and you'd like to get on the air to talk about it, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to the guest form and fill it out. So with that, we come to the end of another episode, guys. Thanks for being here with me. Thanks to all that participated. Remember, you can call in your your uh, questions to 866-65-THINK or use the speak pipe. Actually, today, all of the questions came in through the speak pipe. Uh, next week, probably, I'll go mainly to the call-ins because there's a backlog there now. Uh, just when I, uh, when I went and... Uh, uh, checked out uh, all the stuff on the speak pipe every single question was usable well done followed the formula so if you called in on the speak pipe you didn't hear yourself something went wrong because everything that was in there i used today all right so if you want to support our show and the work that we do one of the painless ways to do that is by using a website called tspaz.com which really is just a page at the survivalpodcast.com all you do is when you get to shop online Go to tspaz.com. You can check out my reviews and see all my past reviews and stuff like that. Uh, and remember, if it's reviewed on tspaz, I own it or I've used it. Um, or you can just do your shopping like you were going to do anyway, and either way you help support us. So what do I have reviewed for you today? I have a tape measure. And it was funny when I originally did this, uh, this product the first time was back in uh, June of 2017. I got like three people in the same week. I need a dadgone tape measure that doesn't suck. And I was like, wow, I kind of just found a tape measure that I don't think sucks anymore. It's made by a company called Coleman. K-O-M-E-L-O-N. Coleman, right? Um, first thing I like about them is they're like green 
with a like neon green uh, on the plastic. So they show up really good because, man, do you lose these things. In my write-up, if you read it, it's kind of funny. I talk about gnomes that steal stuff. And I'll tell you what gnomes steal for me. They steal nail clippers, Sharpie markers, and tape measures. So I have had my love-hate relationship with tape measures my whole life. I've spent some good money on some good ones, and I've had their malfunction rate just as high as cheap ones. And so eventually between losing them, not being able to find them for a month at a time, etc., the gnome stealing them, whatever it is, I decided I'm going to find an affordable tape measure that doesn't suck terribly. Because usually what happens to your tape measure that screws them up is somebody's helping you, and they jerk on it at the end, and it just unravels, and the whole thing's shot. You can never get it to go back inside. Um, so I found these, and I thought, I'll buy a, a two-pack of the 12-footers, and I did. And I'm like, w w why, why the hell isn't every tape measure on the planet built this way? They're not expensive. Uh, they're not expensive at all. You know, they're about general pricing for your, your mid- to low-cost tape measures. You can get a, a two-pack of 12-footers for 15 bucks. So you're looking at about eight, seven fifty a piece, right? Uh, which is for a 12 foot tape, that's that's plenty affordable. What makes them different is they use a technology called self lock. So most tape measures, you open the tape measure, you push a button, it locks it. Now it's locked, and now you can do whatever you want to, and then you unlock it, and it rolls back up. So I want to ask you a question: Have you ever extended a tape measure and wanted to let go of it and have it go right back in, unless you were a kid and you were playing with it? No, right? I mean, what? You see what I'm saying? And have you ever thought, gee, I'm glad that lock is there and I can't pull it further out without unlocking it? Because like a squirrel might run up and, and grab your tape and run away you know, and, and mess your measurement up. No, right? So what this one does is if you pull it out six inches, it just stays at six inches. If you decide you want to measure all the way to the end of the board and push it out further, you don't have to release anything. It'll feed out until you stop pulling it out. But when you let go, it's locked out. So it locks out but not in. You can always extend, but it won't retract. When you hit the button, then it retracts. When I saw that, I'm like, why the hell have they ever made a tape measure any differently than this? So, so that made me love it even more. And I'll say this. I haven't had one break yet, and I have a bunch of them because the gnomes steal them. So I have, like, I actually kind of even bought a couple extra ones and just kind of threw them in places in the garage. So when I lose one and I look around long enough, I'll find one. But I will tell you what I've decided with tape measures. I have two sizes of tape measure in my life. I have 12-footers, and I have 25-footers. They make this one in a 16. I have a link to it if you want it. I don't see the point. Because um, I have never been walking around with a 25-foot tape measure and said I wish it was 9 feet shorter. And I've never felt like the size difference in the product between the 16 and 25 is that big a deal. The 12s are small, they're compact, they fit in a pocket, they fit on your belt nice, what have you. They generally do most of what you need for carpentry and homesteading, so that's what I'll carry around when I'm doing some work. I keep my 25-footer in a drawer where the gnomes can't find it. And if I'm doing a larger project where I need to measure more than 12 feet, I go get it, I do it, and I take it back, and hopefully the gnomes don't get it in the meantime. right? Because I'm telling you, man, I lose the hell out of these things. So I don't want to spend a lot of money on them. I want them to be quality. I want them to work and be functional. The Comlin is the tape measure for me. I think if you try it, you'll, you'll say the same thing. Why the hell weren't they all built this way from the beginning? Why did our grandfathers not have a tape measure that had a release lock instead of a push-on lock? It, it just works better. 
You can find the Coleman tape measure and many other things that I've reviewed, uh, including some of my plucky writing about them, at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Of course, this is Queen Week, and today's song is called Innuendo. Innuendo was the last album released with Freddie Mercury on it. Uh, at the time this, this album was released, Freddie knew he was dying. The band knew he was dying. Nobody in the public really knew that he was dying, though. I'll save further thoughts on that for tomorrow, because the song we have for tomorrow really is about that. Um, this song, uh, though, really kind of fits that, too, so that's why I mention it at all. Here's some stuff on song facts about it. Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor wrote the lyrics of the song as a tribute to Led Zeppelin. When Robert Plant joined the three surviving members of Queen at Freddie Mercury's memorial concert at Wembley Stadium, they played the full version of this song, which included parts of Led Zeppelin's Cashmere and Thank You. The music was started off by Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon jamming in the studio in Montrose. Uh, from then on, Freddie Mercury composed the song and added a long interlude. The melody is Mercury's as well. Lyrics were started off by Mercury, but completed by former dr drummer Roger Taylor. The orchestra in the middle part was completely done with synthesizers by Freddie Mercury and the producer David Richards. Yes, guitarist St Steve Howe plays the Spanish guitar solo in the middle, uh, which is, I think, really cool. I wanted to give you a couple of the lyrics to this song before we go into it. Uh, and think about the fact that, again, this was the last album with Freddie Mercury, and Freddie Mercury did know he was not long for the world at this point. While the sun hangs in the sky and the desert has sand, while the waves crash in the sea and meet the land, while there's a wind and the stars and the rainbow till the mountains crumble into the plain, oh yes, we'll keep on trying, tread that fine line, oh well, keep on trying, yeah, just passing our time. While we live according to race, color, or creed, while we rule by blind madness and pure greed, our lives dictated by tradition, superstition, false religion, through the eons, and on and on, you can be anything you want to be. Just turn yourself into anything you think that you could ever be. Be free with your tempo. Be free, be free. Surrender your ego. Be free. Be free to yourself. Yeah. If there's a God or any kind of justice under the sky, if there's a point, if there's a reason to live or die, if there's an answer to the questions we feel bound to ask, show yourself, destroy our fears, Release your mask. I believe in many, many, many ways that this is advice to his community from a dying man. To the people that loved him and loved his music and loved what he did and loved what he, you know, what the performer that he was. And the, there is no doubt that Freddie Mercury and Queen were one of the greatest theatric bands of all time. They did incredible music. You can think whatever you want about the guy's lifestyle, and I, I don't think it really matters at this point. Um, there ain't a lot of people that could say the guy ever did anything to hurt him. And there's, you know, if when you're gone, 
people generally remembered you fondly, and there's not a lot of people that said you did anything to hurt them. I think you did pretty well. This is a pretty incredible song from a pretty incredible album from a very, very incredible group of talented people. Hope you enjoy it today and hope it uh, resonates with you. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
We. Yeah. Yeah.